Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. What a strange world we live in. Only a few years ago, the idea of high inflation and low growth was unfathomable. Well, stagflation is now on the radar for financial advisors and the investors they serve. At the same time, our latest research shows that investor sentiment is plummeting and valuations look far more attractive by most metrics. So where do the true dangers lie? At what point does this environment create opportunity? And what other challenges might be on the horizon? Hello, and welcome to Simple But Not Easy, a podcast from Morningstar's Wealth Group, where we turn complicated financial developments into actionable ideas. I'm Jonathan Lindstra, Managing Director of the Americas for Investment Management. And today I'm joined by Philip Strail, Morningstar's Global Head of Research for Investment Management, and Tyler Dan, our Head of Research for the Americas. The topic we're discussing today comes at such an interesting and relevant time. I'm delighted to have two of our most senior researchers who will help us unpack the news headlines as we seek to understand the true impact, not only on the broader markets, but on our own portfolios. This episode also follows the recent release of two new papers authored by our guests entitled Finding Opportunities Amid the Market Uncertainty and Stagflation, an Economic Nightmare, an Investment Yellow Flag. To access both of these important papers and more, please be sure to visit mp.morningstar.com on the Insights tab, or you can just email us at simple at morningstar.com. Now let's get started. Philip, Tyler, welcome back to the studio. You guys are familiar voices and even hosts of uh, Simple But Not Easy. So welcome. Thanks for taking the time today to uh, invest in this topic. Great to be back, Jonathan. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Jonathan. Great. Well, look, I'm really looking forward to digging into, uh, into this and hearing specifics from you, particularly unpacking this economic nightmare, uh, an investment yellow flag that you reference in your latest paper. But first, can we just start with something very uh, easy and level setting here? How, how in the world did we get here? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think uh, it's obviously quite a unique market environment we're in at the moment. Uh, you know, we've had uh, unprecedented sort of response to a global health crisis, the pandemic in in 2020, and you had uh, sort of unprecedented, you know, fiscal and monetary stimulus, and on the back of that, you had uh, you know also a, a war in Ukraine, uh, and so. I think we've just uh, there's a combination of things that happened over the past couple of years that sort of brought us uh, to where we are today. But I would say if I were to kind of pick out one thing, one game changer that happened just in sort of 2022 is the rise of inflation. And I think that really kind of was a game changer for capital markets and reversed a lot of the trends that we've seen uh, prior to that. Yeah, I guess I'd add to that, Jonathan. I think that the response to inflation by the Fed, or if you want to consider the global Fed, as far as how monetary policymakers uh, derive and react to inflation. I think that you could make a judgment call with the benefit of hindsight that perhaps people were not quite as proactive about trying to manage inflation as they might have been. And I think that what is happening right now is that there seems to be a concerted effort to make up for that. So perhaps the, running the risk of overshooting. That's, that's certainly on the minds of many, right, including ourselves as investors. But in being that inflation is certainly the topic, you know, across all the headlines and, and certainly top of mind for all investors and financial advisors alike. And now that we see the Fed taking action by increasing rates, both in magnitude and frequency that we 
haven't seen. Um, and in your paper, you remind us, even what the Fed Chairman Powell said, you know, in that uh, in recent months that he would, quote, keep at it, you know, until the job was done, unquote. Mm. Um, so I really have, I guess, two questions, you know, uh, the first one being, you know, what is the exact impact of inflation on assets and the various scenarios we might see play out? And number two, you know, and not wanting to put you in the seat of the Fed chair, but I will at least for a moment to get your perspective. What will the Fed need to see to determine, you know, when that quote job is done? Yeah, so the Fed has explicitly said that they are looking not necessarily at headline CPI, but they're really looking for core and for core inflation to be trending down meaningfully towards their target of 2%. Now, they have not made an adjustment upwards to that target. There are questions about whether they might. Uh, there's a question of if they do, when would they do that? I mean, there are lots of questions. But I think that at this stage, for us to really, if we're putting ourselves in the mind of the Fed, I think that what the Fed will want to do is see meaningful improvement in that core level of inflation towards their long-term target, which is 2%. And that probably means that the terminal rate, the long-term rate, will need to be at a level that is reducing the innate demand in the economy and, and probably employment as well and showing some meaningful softening in the economy and, and therefore allowing for those expectations of inflation uh, to become reflected in the monthly numbers. So core at 2% is what we're looking for there. So you took the second one first, Tyler. No penalties for that. But maybe, Philip, I'll go over to you for, you know, what is the exact impact of inflation, um, you know, on the broader markets, asset classes, and what are the scenarios that we might see play out? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we've seen significant drawdowns in both equity and, and bond markets this year. And it's just, uh, you know, goes to show that markets don't like inflation. And so if you're buying a, uh, a treasury bond and, uh, you know, uh, obviously 12 months ago, you had much lower yields, you didn't have to really worry about 12 months ago, you know, what, what the inflation rate, you know, was going to be. But if you have significant inflation uncertainty, that really uh, affects it asset prices and, and sort of, uh, you know, led to a pretty significant repricing of many asset classes. On the, on the equity side as well, there's uncertainty as to how much of the uh, the price increases companies can pass on to consumers, and that just is an environment that markets don't like. And I'll let Tyler kind of speak about the stagflation scenario specifically, but at a broad level, some of the key things that tend to happen during periods of, of high inflation, you tend to see lower equity multiples. Uh, I think investors got used to a low interest rate environment, an environment where inflation uncertainty was not really a challenge. And I think people got used to, you know, higher multiples, you know, trailing multiples, you know, should it be, you know, 20 times earnings. We always took a, a longer term stance there. Uh, you know, our U.S. equity model, for example, we use, you know, so 18 times uh, earnings, which is, you know, lower than what other people might have used in terms of the trailing numbers. Um, you, you might also see uh, a shift in, you know, the stock bond correlation that's going to be a bit more you know, positive than it has in the past. We've, we've gotten used to, uh, you know, a situation where bonds were always diversifying against equity uh, because we were in a disinflationary environment. And so that kind of generally helped help fixed income when there's sort of negative news about growth. And now that's not the case anymore. We actually have seen uh, correlations rise. Um, and so those are, those are two kind of macro implications. I don't know, maybe Tyler, you want to jump in on the, just the stagflation scenario that we, I know you've done a lot of work on. Yes. So 
I guess to add to Philip's point, first of all, um, I think that multiples do tend to pull in in periods of high inflation and potentially rising interest rates. And what we've seen this year, as an example, has been a significant pullback in the multiples of all stocks, but also most notably higher multiple, longer duration growth stocks. And that makes some sense um, for that to be the case. As far as specifically the stagflation backdrop, what does that mean, first Mm. of all? I think it's important to understand Mm. what do we mean when we talk about this concept of stagflation. And if you think about regimes of economic growth on the one hand and inflation levels on the other hand, and you put it into quadrants as far as low growth, low inflation, high growth, high inflation, where would stagflation place you? It would place you in a quadrant where economic growth is low and where inflation levels are high. And that's really not a good place uh, as far as where you want to be. Most because part of the forward return stream not only is, of course, what you pay in dividends and things like that, but also the growth that you're able to show as far as profits and the multiple that people are willing to pay for a stream of earnings. And so from an equity perspective, uh, if you have a period of high inflation and therefore potentially rising rates in response to that high Mm -hmm. inflation, then the willingness for investors to pay a higher multiple for a stream of earnings is probably more muted. Uh, similarly, profits, when, when there's a period of high inflation, uh, that means generally costs are rising and the ability to pass those costs on in the form of revenues being increased you know, becomes questionable, certainly in the mind of the market. And so the profit margin outlook in particular could be a shoe to drop there in that scenario. And I think that where we've seen thus far is that empirically we've observed that that margin expectations have come in a little bit, but maybe not as much as they might. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're really watching. And so to the extent that we are in this stagflationary backdrop, profits probably get crimped and multiples probably come down. And, and we've seen part of that play out, in my opinion. That's really helpful. In in I guess I'll just push you a little further on that just because certainly not where we want to be, right. <laughs> not a good place to be as you articulated. But so what now? What should we be doing? What should we be thinking? We, we are here. Um, yeah. What is your research leading us to believe in how might we be taking action on our own portfolios? The, so we, we like to think about things in terms of long-term expected returns. We call uh, those expected returns, we, we characterize them as valuation implied returns. And so what we do when we're appraising the value of, of an, an asset class, whether it be a bond, a stock, a, an index of any kind, uh, we're looking at the forward uh, ability for us to get paid something. And then we're looking at how much that'll grow. And we're looking at what price people will be willing to pay for that asset class as well. And so our analysis is fairly consistent, and in the absence of contravening information, will generally revert towards long-term historical average levels of, of things like sales growth, profitability, uh, multiples paid, and returns on equity as some examples. And so 
in our framework, what we've seen is this year, those expected returns, those VIRs, as we call them, have been rising. And so broadly speaking, we entered the year in an environment where we weren't finding a lot that was actually very attractive. Uh, but we're now in a situation where all else equal, everything is starting to look a lot more attractive, not necessarily barn burner valuations, not necessarily back up the truck and buy it now, but we're at a point where things are really starting to look like we should be sharpening our pencils. And so really that's what we're doing. And we're seeing select opportunities. Uh, you know, Philip just put out a piece about that this month, and maybe we can go into that in some more detail, but we're starting to see select areas where the valuation relative to the risk we're taking on seems actually pretty attractive. That's helpful, Tyler. Thank you. And, and I know I'm amongst most senior researchers we have here at the firm, so forgive me for the quote that you may not recognize, but in the immortal words of Sir Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> what did yeah. we, did we not see this coming? Uh, and, and how could we have been uh, Monday morning quarterbacking here, full candor, right? But yeah. what did we see? What did we not see? And how can we better plan for the future? It's a great point, Jonathan. I think it's just uh, we just have to be cognizant as well. There's a significant amount of uncertainty uh, in markets and predicting what's going to happen in the macro economy with any degree of, of precision is very challenging to do. And to give you an example of where the inflation forecast of you know professional forecasters was 12 months ago, that number was at 3% for 2022. Uh, you know, today that forecast has, has been updated to 8%. So you have a sort of a 5 percentage point, you know, miss. And we are managing portfolios in a way that we want to make sure that they're robust to different macroeconomic scenarios. And we've done uh, work on that sort of stagflation scenario. But I think we need to recognize that there's a significant amount of uncertainty out there. And we can't know for certain that, you know, there's going to be a stagflation scenario that's around the corner, but we want to be prepared uh, if that's going to be happening. And so, um, Tyler, maybe you can touch on some of the asset classes uh, that you know we feel like are performing well during a stagflationary scenario in terms of how we how we're thinking about that. Sure. So from the perspective of the work we've done, as far as the different quadrants, and and again the stagflationary quadrant is one where growth is uh, muted and where inflation is persistently high. So where would we? based on what we've researched, what, what tends to work in that regime? Broadly speaking, assets that are related to commodities tend to hold value comparatively well in that type of environment, as well as inflation-linked assets and things like uh, treasury inflation-protected securities or TIPS, as one example, or otherwise known as linkers would be an asset class that might do well in that sort of environment. And so uh, when you think about commodity-related assets, that could be anything from an oil company that produces oil and gas commodities. It could be a metal and mining company. It could actually be an agricultural company where they're producing either fertilizer or they're somewhere in the supply chain of, of agriculture. Uh, so those businesses could do better. You know, past is never always prologue, but as they say, history tends to rhyme. Uh, and so 
um, those are some areas where, you know, it may make sense to consider uh, being in, in in this type of environment. Thanks for that. And, and Philip, you referenced earlier, you know, correlations are up pretty much, you know, amongst asset classes in general. And maybe if we just look at fixed income in particular for a moment, and your paper addresses this a bit, but can you talk a little bit about the need for precision within fixed income, right? It's not just, yes, that's a, a, an aggregate, a, a very va- wide and vast and growing asset class. So can you talk a little bit about the specifics in the skilled hand needed in that asset class at the moment? Yes. And so it's been a, a very challenging year for, for fixed income. Certainly, you know, equities are down 25%, but when, when the ag bond is down 16% year to date, I think that's a different, uh, a different story. And, you know, we have teams focused on, on really understanding the fundamentals of, of, you know, a number of different fixed income markets globally, uh, currencies. And so uh, we, we sort of cast a pretty wide net here. And if you look at, you know, what, what's happened over the past, you know, 10 plus months, I think we've really seen a repricing uh, within fixed income markets where a lot of the, the granular pieces that you're, you're talking about, Jonathan, actually, uh, you know, we moved from a, a period where the reward for risk of fixed income was, you know, quite unattractive to, you know, kind of seeing a number of those building blocks, you know, looking quite fairly valued, actually. And so whether it's uh, tips, you know, we've seen a, a bit of a sell-off there um, over the past couple of months. That's a medium conviction for us now. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, 1.7% uh, real yield for the next 10 year, years in, 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 in tips, which is, which is much better than it was uh, just a year ago. And, you know, if you look at the different segments, I think overall, you know, credit doesn't look, uh, you know, cheap to us yet. I think, you know, we just looked at high yield and uh, bank loans, for example. Uh, recently, we think that's uh, kind of fairly valued at the moment. It's not a, sc- a screaming buy. One of the areas that we like a bit more is our local currency emerging market debt. So that's, uh, these are debts issued by uh, emerging markets in local currency, obviously a, a different risk profile than a treasury bond, but we, we do see a bit more value there. Uh, within the fixed income complex, though, uh, the one thing I will point out is that uh, you know, we've also seen significant dollar strength uh, so far in, in, in 2022. And some of the valuation models that we track and looking at, uh, especially uh, some of the major uh, currencies like the pound, the euro, and the and the Japanese yen, our valuation models indicate that those foreign currencies are at their most attractive level in, in about two decades. And so we've, we've seen some, some pretty significant moves uh, within fixed income, within the FX markets. In, uh, in 2022. And so, you know, while there tends to be a degree of, you know, of persistence to, uh, to currency moves, and it seems like, you know, people are still, a lot of people are still kind of long dollar, uh, people who have a, have a sort of a medium term, long term investment horizon looking at, you know, maybe investing in, in some foreign currencies could be beneficial. So Tyler, we're all, whether we're professionals or whether we're individual investors, we're all navigating this environment of risk and uncertainty. Yes. Can you unpack that a little bit further, just on um, the delineation therein, and then also what implications that environment has on us as far as our own investor behavior? Well, firstly, risk is different than uncertainty. I think it's important to make that distinction. Uncertainty is almost a mind frame Hmm. or mindset, whereas risk is actually something that could hurt. And what you don't want is for your uncertainty, uh, the unknown, to essentially cause it to transmogrify or to morph into a risk itself where 
your decision making is is impacted by this sort of paralyzing sense of uncertainty, right? So when we think about things in this context, and Philip has mentioned planning over predicting, I think that there are certain elements which frankly can't be predicted. Um, and so this concept of uncertainty is, is acknowledging this notion that there are things that can't be predicted. And gosh, that feels terrible. But, uh, <laughs> but the concept of planning is really speaking to risk. And where if you're building portfolios that are robust, as Philip has mentioned over time here, um, and where you are taking into account these various regimes, these various scenarios, you're analyzing uh, what works in each one, and you're effectively probability weighting the portfolios to account for the various different types of environments that could you could be in. Uh, that's where um, that can give you a degree of conviction that your portfolio is being invested, it's being put to work, and where over the long term, it should be paying off for you. And so ultimately, as investors, we're having to manage a degree of uncertainty while we're addressing this concept of risk. And so ultimately, um, as investors, we're hoping to be taking advantage of things that really we can control, which are our behavior, our decisions, as well as the time horizon we deploy and on behalf of our, our clients. And so we cannot be finding ourselves locked into a sense of short-termism. Uh, we try to operate with the long-term in mind and, and take advantage of periods of, you know, maybe shorter-term uncertainty to try to uh, deploy our process to make wise decisions for the long-term. So that's my thought. Yeah, and, and just to add to that and maybe summarize it a bit. So if we think about risk, you know, think about a game of cards or, you know, um, uh, you know, tossing a coin, you know the potential outcomes, you know, head or tail. Uh, you do not know what the outcome is going to be. The, so the outcome is not known. With, with uncertainty, not only is the, is the outcome unknown, uh, head or tail, you also don't know what the option set is. Uh, you don't know what the range of, uh, of outcomes is. Is it going to be stagflation? Is, is there going to be a war? in Ukraine. And so the challenge is behaviorally that, you know, people do not like uncertainty. And from a behavioral standpoint, uh, investors tend to have sort of three types of responses to, to uncertainty. Uh, you know, one of them is, is a, a fight response where you basically, uh, you know, you, you're, you see the market going down and you want to sort of overtrade. You feel like you want to, you know, fight you know, what's happening in the market and try to respond. And so that sort of action bias can be quite detrimental in terms of trying to, uh, you know, uh, you know, fight whatever's happening and, and uh, that sort of notion of, of short-termism that you talked about. Um, and then there's some folks that uh, have a flight response. Uh, and so they basically, those are the folks that sort of pull money out of the, out of the market at the wrong time. And it's, it's very challenging to do. And I think that's certainly something as investors and, and, and advisors, we have to uh, make sure we, we manage against. And then 
The third response is, is a freeze response. And out of the three responses, that's actually probably the, the least detrimental. Some, oftentimes not doing anything uh, is not a bad thing to do. At the same time, you know, I think as, as long-term investors, I think you know, these are the times when we see significant uncertainty. These are the times where we can also you know, uh, potentially enter new positions and actually things look more attractive. And so following a, a disciplined uh, long-term you know, evaluation-driven process really can help there, which is what we're trying to do, uh, while acknowledging, you know, that, you know, the future is uncertain and we can't have, uh, you know, we don't know exactly uh, what the future holds. But, uh, you know, our, our history kind of tells us that following, you know, that disciplined, you know, evaluation-driven process, focusing on things that are, uh, you know, somewhat predictable at the asset class level are important uh, to the outcome. Those are kind of the uh, the areas we tend to we t- tend to focus our research. Well, it's no doubt an investor's metal is being tested at all levels, right? And that's a great synopsis, Philip. Thanks for that. It's uh, nothing's changed from the childhood playground of fight, <laughs> fight, flight, or freeze. <laughs> that's from what my father told me. Anyway, um, I'd love both of you to answer this and um, give you a moment to think about it. But you know, in your opinion and from your perspective, what is the industry not? paying enough attention to. That might be a data point. That might be something even beyond current markets and economic data, et cetera. But in your opinion, what is what, are, what should we all be waking up to a bit more that's going to be um, important for the future? So I think there's a lot of attention being paid to policy rights. And I think that what is potentially quite interesting is the potential liquidity impact from quantitative tightening that is beginning to be talked about, but perhaps is not fully baked in. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not saying that uh, markets will not be orderly, but I do think there's increased potential for markets to become disorderly uh, to the extent that um, central banks are trying to reduce the size of their balance sheet at, uh, you know, somewhat predictable rate um, with people not really wanting to buy it. Um, so that's not to say, again, it's not to ring an alarm bell, but it's to say uh, there are other things going on under the hood here, and it's not just policy rates. So from, from an economic perspective and from an from a asset pricing perspective, I, I do think that that's something that should be thought about at least. Phil, how about you? Yeah, I actually agree with that with that theme. And if we think about kind of the the topic, you I'll know, that easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'll sort of put a finer point on it. What I would say is that uh, you know the, the the role that that fiscal policy plays, I think, is is, is quite important. And I think in, in that sense, you know, the focus on on just monetary policy in some in some sense misses you know the overall you know change we've gone through over the past couple of years, and so. Uh, you know, even going into the COVID crisis, interest rates were very low, and a lot of the stimulating, you know, of the economy happened through fiscal policy. And uh, I think it's it's a reality that you know some of these you know ways of stimulating and managing the economy through fiscal tools uh, are are less tested, and you can't you know. Uh, and I think part of the uh, the challenge we're in today with with having you know really high inflation. Uh, you know, coming you know, highest inflation rate in sort of forty plus years uh, has to do, I think, with that new policy tool and uh, actually focusing more and understanding, 
you know, how government how governments make decisions, how uh, central banks and uh, you know the the treasury side of things, the fiscal side work together uh, in a more effective way. I think that's something we have to pay attention to. I think that what's happening in the UK is um, is a great example there. We need you know better mechanisms for um, uh, central banks and and, and treasury uh, departments to to work together. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, uh, what we're known for here on Simple But Not Easy is a 10-second takeaway. So if anyone's in their cars or doing something else while they're listening to this, if we're going to leave them with one last nugget from each of your perspective, what's your 10-second takeaway? What, what, what do they need to hear? Tyler, we'll start with you. Okay. It's a tough backdrop, but it's not insurmountable. If you stay focused on the long term and you avoid the temptation to make rash decisions, then this is the type of time where you can really begin to create wealth. I'd say, um, yeah, focus on the long term, focus on on what matters, which are, you know, long-term fundamentals and uh, long-term expected returns. And I think, you know, things look much better today than they did 12 months ago. Fantastic. And there you have it. Another episode of Simple But Not Easy. As always, we thank you for your time and engagement. And once again, special thanks to Philip and Tyler for their insights. If you'd like to know more about the research they produce and manage, please visit mp.morningstar.com on the Insights tab or reach out and drop us a quick note at simple at morningstar.com. If you're enjoying these episodes, we encourage you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, thanks again from the team at Morningstar Wealth. This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. 